welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 9. Beginning in verse 42, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote that when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to simply news. I have spent the last several weeks looking at this text, preparing for it, in order to, to try to preach it. And I was struck by, by how difficult this text is. Because this right here is a very difficult text in the Bible. Because, first of all, there's a lot here. I mean, there's a lot of things being addressed in this passage. I mean, there's lots to unpack here. Jesus talks about, you know, us causing other people to sin. He talks about our own sin. And he talks about the consequences of sin. And then he ties it all together talking about discipleship. Secondly, it's difficult because... It's difficult to interpret. I mean, think about this. Jesus talks about millstones and being thrown into the ocean, and he talks about hell and plucking out your eyeball and being salted with fire. I mean, this is complex. The imagery here really requires some care. And the thing is, is all of this is in one paragraph, so you can't just take it all apart and just you know create it in nice little packets and bite-sized chunks. Right? You can't try to explain it individually, not to mention... This is all in the in the context of of what was said before. This is an ongoing conversation that went, went all the way back to verse 35. And then thirdly, it's difficult because there's a couple of variant readings in the Greek manuscript used to translate the Bible into English. If you are reading the ESV, which is what we teach from here, you will notice in the text that it goes from verse 34 to verse 35 and from verse 35 I mean excuse me verse 43 to verse 45 and then verse 45 to verse 47 there is no verse 46 or 44 here which has caused some people to say oh my goodness they're changing the bible right them newfangled english translations they're not even the word of god because they're leaving stuff out of the bible nobody's changing the bible okay if you, if you look at the ESV and you go all the way to the bottom of the page, you will notice that there are footnotes there. And footnote number six says this. Some manuscripts add verse 44 and 46, which are identical to verse 48. Verse 48 says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
You see, some manuscripts have verse 48 repeated multiple times in the text. In fact, if, if you have a King James Version of the Bible or a New King James Version of the Bible, you'll see that. In fact, the New King James Version of the Bible reads this way. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that you shall that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's inserted there. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet, but to be cast into hell into the fire, which shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, it's inserted there. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into Hellfire, which where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And all of the translations have that verse. You see the difference here. And the reason for the difference is actually a very simple explanation. The oldest and the most reliable manuscripts available to us today don't have this variant reading. I want you to hear me on this. The oldest and the best attested to and the most reliable Greek manuscripts in existence right now don't read the way that this King James or New King James Version reads. Right? It, it does say where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, but it's not repeated over and over again throughout the text. And again, the reason for that is the original Greek manuscripts more than likely simply didn't have this repetition in it. In fact, through what is called textual criticism, which is the science of comparing and categorizing and cataloging the over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that, that we have in existence, um, they have traced down what, what seems to be a, a scribal insertion. They, 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 they are actually able to see the progression of the text. And what happens is, is sometimes scribes, when they copy down somebody else's manuscript, sometimes they'll insert something that they thought might be missing. Right? They maybe maybe remember something from a different verse in a different chapter, and it sounds about right. You know, sometimes they, they might insert a word. Or sometimes a scribe would see a marginal note that another scribe had put in the text. You know, you know how you do in your Bible, right? You write little notes in the margin. Well, well scribes would do the same thing. Talk, you know, sometimes they would create doxology. Sometimes they would just make a note how it references to something else. Well, when that scribe would get the text, they didn't have access to the old scribe because it's probably dead. And so instead of erasing it and deleting it, they went ahead and included it in the text so that it didn't get lost. And this happened multiple times. Um, but what, we've, what we have here in the text is clearly an insertion after the original. Mark didn't write it down that, uh, the other way, which really tells us two things. First of all, if you're someone who says the King James Version of the Bible is the only correct version or only correct translation of the, of the Bible, you're just sorely mistaken because the evidence does not support that. If you think that the King James Version of the Bible is the perfect translation from the Greek to English, you're either ignorant and you just don't know the details and all the facts behind the research that's being done, or you're just being superstitious and willfully ignoring the facts. Number two, what this tells us is this text was really difficult even then, for the scribes to deal with in history. In fact, John MacArthur suggests that this variant reading of this text came about because, because this is not just a difficult text for us. It's difficult for, the, for the, the, the scribes as well to translate. It's difficult. You know, It's a subject that's difficult to think about. I mean, it's a serious subject here. He's talking about hell. 
which suggests that the scribe you know, repeated the emphasis on the worm and the fire to drive home the point of the horrors of hell. The scribe simply was just trying to emphasize the horrors, the horrific nature of hell itself, which then is really the fourth reason why this is a difficult text, because Jesus brings to us face-to-face with the grim reality of hell. Jesus talks about the consequences of our sin and the consequences of us causing other people to sin. And and more than, than that, Jesus suggests radical action to avoid hell, like plucking out eyeballs and amputating limbs. This indeed has been a very difficult text to wrestle with. And so I have struggled with how to approach this text. In fact, I've talked to Hugh about it for several weeks. And I even talked to the worship team about it. right? And I talked about different ways I might approach this text. And and I realized no matter how we actually approach this text, I still need to make sure that it's grounded in the context. Because remember where we are, right? The gospel of Mark is a fast-moving, action-packed narrative that focuses on what Jesus does, and it's a great book to study in order to learn what it means to follow Christ, which is what we are called to do. Right? We are called to be his disciples, his followers, which is exactly what this series has been about, following Christ. And what we've learned is following Christ is only possible for those who've had their hearts radically transformed by God and who have turned to Christ in faith and repentance. Jesus said, the time is now. The kingdom is here, and the only way into the kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. And what we've learned so far is life in the kingdom, for those who follow Christ, is to be radically different than the rest of the world. Not just a little different, radically different. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been teaching his followers that life in the kingdom is not about them. They think it's about them, but it's not about them. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that following Christ you know, and following him is about self-denial. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me and come after me, you need to deny yourself. You need to be, be willing to go wherever I lead you. That Jesus must be the first and foremost priority in your life. He also said that, that you must be selfless. Kingdom life is selfless. Discipleship is about being selfless. Jesus makes it clear that in the kingdom that you're to put all other people first, that the greatest person in the kingdom is the one who values everyone else above themselves. He also said that discipleship is about service to God and and to others. Jesus said that, 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 that the lowliest person in the kingdom has value and that we're to serve them. Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. He also said that that discipleship is sacrificial. He told his disciples to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, which means you need to be willing to pay whatever price it costs to go where Jesus is leading you. It's also about humility. Jesus makes it really clear that life in the kingdom and discipleship is not about your position. It is not about your title. It's not about prestige. It's not about how important you are. The least important person in the kingdom has great worth in the kingdom. And the least act of service is important to God. Following Christ is about humbling ourselves, not thinking it's all about us. And he tells the disciples that essentially that discipleship is about being dependent upon God. Because we're not going to be able to do anything on our own. In fact, we can't do this. This radical life isn't something we can live by our own strength. We cannot live a life of self-denial and selflessness and sacrifice and humility on our own. 
We must first be radically transformed by God himself, and then, and then we must continue to live dependent upon Christ, allowing him to slowly and progressively change us more and more into his image. That is why we said that following Christ is about living out the radical transformation of our hearts. Life in the kingdom is radically different than the rest of the world, and that requires a radical transformation of who we are. And it will require God's ongoing transformative work in our lives. And that's what we've seen so far. God radically transforms our hearts, calls us to live radically different lives, which is only possible when we're radically dependent upon Jesus. And if that's not enough to make your head swim, Jesus in this text is going to show us and the disciples that he is calling us to a life more radical than we ever imagined. In this text, we're going we're to see Jesus tell them Right? That those who follow him, that the call is, it's a call to a radical kind of love for others. And a radical kind of purity, unlike the rest of the world. And a radical kind of obedience to his word. And a radical kind of sacrifice. We know that following Christ means sacrifice. But Jesus is going to get very specific here about that sacrifice. That's what we're going to see in this text. And it is a whole lot to talk about. In fact, there's more to tackle here than we can possibly do in one sermon. And and so we're going to take some time and we're going to explore these things over the next few weeks. In in fact, if you can want to think about this as like a little mini-series, right, in our ongoing series of Mark, right? In fact, I created a new graphic, you know, to kind of like let people know that's what we're doing, right? You know, called Radical Discipleship. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the call to radical love, to radical purity, to radical sacrifice, and radical obedience. But before we get into that, we need to spend some time talking about one of the things that makes all of these things and all the things around the Christian faith make sense. Because let's face it. Right? Following Christ and living out this radical transformation of our heart does not make any sense. Living radically different than the rest of the world doesn't make any sense, especially when living that way will make us a target for persecution. It doesn't make sense. Being selfless and self-denying and sacrificial and radically obedient doesn't make any sense. Jesus, a man who never committed any sin, being tortured and killed on the cross doesn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense unless you understand something. The only way for this to make sense, the only way for following Christ to make sense is to understand that this radical transformation of our hearts and our call into his family and our call to follow him is only made possible by a radical rescue. We have been radically rescued by Christ. And in this text, we're going to see what we have been rescued from. That's what we need to talk about today, what we've been rescued from, because it is the foundation of everything else that we're going to talk about. In fact, if we don't understand what we've been rescued from, nothing in Christianity makes any sense at all. It's just a weird religion. Not following Jesus, not self-sacrifice, not even the gospel makes any sense. Again, John Piper said, when the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to simply news. And that's the truth that we need to confront today. 
And that is the reality of hell. And I would argue that, that without this reality, nothing about following Jesus makes any sense. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin looking at this in verse 43. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, the thing that, that you need to settle in your mind and your heart right now, the thing that you need to settle permanently in your mind and your heart right now is the immutable and undeniable truth that hell exists. It absolutely exists. Regardless of what the rest of the world wants to tell you, hell exists. It is a real place. And this is the truth that the scriptures, this is the, this is the truth that the culture despises. This is the truth that many people who profess to be Christians refuse to believe. This is the truth that preachers refuse to talk about. This is the truth that many churches want to ignore. You've heard it all before. A loving God would not send anyone to hell. A good God would not dare even to create anything like hell. Hell is just a metaphor for something else. It can't be real because, because that is outside the character of God to create such a place. The idea of God creating a place of, of eternal punishment for those who don't obey him is abhorrent. And I just can't worship a God like that. In fact, I refuse to worship a God like that. Any of that sound familiar? That's how the world feels about the doctrine of hell. That's how many Christians feel about the doctrine of hell. Brothers and sisters, I want, I want you to hear me. And I want you to understand, and, and I mean this with the absolute deepest love that I can possibly muster in my heart. Your feelings on this subject don't matter. With all due respect, with all sincerity in my heart, if I could like have, have you feel the emotion I have for you, you need to understand that your emotional response to this doctrine doesn't matter. How you feel about hell and the idea of it being real is irrelevant. The only thing that matters, the only thing that's relevant is the truth the only thing that matters is, is what God has to say about it. And in this text, we see Jesus himself, God in the flesh, repeatedly declaring the existence of hell. Three times in three verses, he makes reference to hell itself. He uses the Greek word Gehenna. Now, before you say he's speaking allegorical here, consider the fact that Jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in the entire Bible. God himself in the flesh said more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. In fact, he spoke more about hell than he did heaven. I don't know if you realize that or not. And he made a point to describe hell in great detail, beginning with the purpose of hell. You see, Jesus tells us that hell is a penalty for, for sin. Notice, he says, 
If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. Sin, the consequence. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Sin and consequence. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Why? It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Again, sin and consequence. Jesus is clearly saying that hell is a just penalty for sin. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. What are, what are wages? That's right, payment. Wages are what you were paid for what you have earned. It's not just a payment. It's what you've earned. When you go to work, you get paid. It's not a gift. Though sometimes your employers might think it is. It's not a gift. You earned it. And Paul says what you have earned, the just reward for what you have earned by your sin is death. Now some might say, wait a minute, Paul says the wages of sin is death. That means that we die, and that's it. He's talking about physical death. He's not talking about hell. Well, actually the rest of the verse reads like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Paul is not only talking about physical death, Life and physical death. He's also talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. And what Paul is saying here is what we've earned from our sin is hell. Well, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said that it was death, not hell. And you're right. But spiritual death and hell are the same thing. In fact, turn with me to, to Revelation chapter 20. This is important enough, I'll even wait. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. By the way, that's all the way to the end, just in case you didn't know. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Remember the image that we saw, right? Of of, of all of creation worshiping. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades, or the grave, gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, or the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The death that Paul is talking about is hell. That is what the wages we deserve because of our sin. In fact, notice Revelation 20 is about judgment. And the dead are judged according to what? What they have done. They are judged for their sin. Hell is a very real penalty for sin. And those who are not in Christ, whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will be cast into hell. Hell is the penalty for sin. And hell is a horrible and terrifying place. Notice what verse 43 says, that hell is the unquenchable fire. 
And then verse 48 says that hell is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the Bible, hell is also, as we saw in Revelation, called the lake of fire. It is also called the furnace of fire. Jesus also said it's an eternal fire. Jesus elsewhere calls it the outer darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you can just imagine that, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So contrary to popular opinion... Hell is real. And again, and, and also contrary to the popular opinion, the devil does not reign in hell. Did you know that? Some people still have this image that for some reason that, that, that Satan and his minions are the ones that run hell, right? and they get to torture us. No. In fact, it's the place where the devil and his demons will be cast into hell. Romans chapter 20, a few verses earlier, it says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where they're where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever. This is the place of punishment for Satan himself as well. Now, what we need to understand is this imagery, as awful as it is, <clears throat> doesn't fully even begin to convey the horrible nature of hell itself. And the reason is, when we read in English the word hell, we just kind of miss something. Because the word that Jesus uses here for hell is the word Gehenna. And this word Gehenna is actually from the Hebrew word Gehinnon, which is, is, which is for the valley of Hinnon. And it's a valley that's the south. It's actually a real place. It's a valley south of Jerusalem. And this valley became infamous during the reign of Ahaz, the king of Judah, and Manasseh, the king of Israel. <clears throat> you see, during this time, the leaders of both Judah and Israel had turned away from God and were following after false gods to the point that they were leading their countries into great sin. And in the valley of Hinnon, the Israelites, okay, God's covenant people at the time practiced the worst form of idolatry possible. They practiced child sacrifice. In fact, Ahaz himself sacrificed his own children there. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 2 and 3, it reads, He even made metal images of, of the balls, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering. Let that sink in. The king of Judah himself sacrificed his own children there. As well as the king of Israel, Manasseh. Chronicles chapter 33 verse 6 says, And he burned his own sons as an offering in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Both of these kings of the divided kingdom of Israel <clears throat> sacrificed their own children to the god of Molech. <clears throat> They sacrificed their children to the god of Molech in the valley of Hinnom. And so did many other Israelites. They sacrificed their children in this, in this valley. And the valley was actually also known as the valley of the drum. And the reason why it was called the valley of the drum is because they would beat these really big, loud drums during the sacrifice that would echo throughout the, the valley. You see, this valley... In the valley stood a bronze altar to, that was made to the god Molech, who stood with his hands out like this. And then he would set a fire under the altar, making the bronze uh, scorching hot. And then they would take 
these live babies, these live children, and they would lay them in the glowing hands of this, this bronze god called Molech, and the children would scream in pain as they began to fry, and they would beat the drums in the valley so loud to drown out the screams and the shrieks of these children and these babies as they were being sacrificed alive, being burned to death. And this was such a horrible thing that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, and they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. This was unthinkable, an abomination before God. Why would anyone do such a thing? Well, because the belief was that if you will sacrifice your child to the god Moloch, your life will be blessed. If you want prosperity, you want success, you want your life to, to be abundant, you want your crops to grow, you want your wife to be healed, then just give Moloch your child and your life is going to get better. By the way, why do people go to abortion clinics and have their children sacrificed today? Because it's what it is. It's child sacrifice. They do it so they can have a blessed life. That they can be prosperous. They can be successful. They can have a life of abundance, right? I mean, that's why do women have abortions? Well, I can't afford it right now. I just don't have the money right now. It's about the money then. I'm not prospering enough right now. I'm not ready to be a parent right now. I, just, I want to keep doing my own life and living my own life. I don't, I don't want to stop partying. I don't want to stop doing things I want to do. I want to finish school. I want to keep, get my career on track first. I don't want stretch marks. I've heard, I've heard that, actually. I don't want to take care of someone else. I'm going, to, I'm going to sacrifice my child so my life will be better. We sacrifice our children for the same selfish reasons they did. The only difference is we don't need drums to silence the screams. Because in our day and age, we murder our children in their mother's womb so you can't hear the scream. But make no mistake, they do scream. And they do feel pain. All in the name of living a better life is idolatrous. And to date, 70 million babies have been sacrificed in America to the god of Moloch since 1972. By the way, you know what Moloch's new name is here in the 21st century? Planned Parenthood. And you think that God isn't going to come to judge our country? If God doesn't judge our country for our sin, he owes Ahaz and Manasseh an apology. The Valley of Hinnom was a place of child sacrifice. There were untold number of children slaughtered there. But King Josiah put an end to that practice and he declared this place to be an unclean place of refuse, and people would then dump their trash there and human excrement there and animal corpses there, and things were set on fire, and there was so much refuse in that valley that the fire never went out. And this became the symbol of the final judgment to come. This is the imagery that Jesus uses to describe the reality of hell. Not only is it a lake of fire, it's a place of filth and death and decomposition and screams and the worst kind of abominations and weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that hell is a never-ending torment. 
It's a place of everlasting torment. Notice the language. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the wor- their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, notice the imagery of endurance here. The fire is not quenched. Jesus says that it's unquenchable. In fact, in Matthew, he calls it the eternal fire. It's an enduring fire that, that lasts forever. But also notice this really weird, kind of weird expression because we kind of read over it. It's not the worm does not die. Their worm does not die. Now, what worm are they talking about? Well, the kind of worm that consumes dead bodies. We know what kind of worms those are. And it says their worm. Their worm. It's their own personal worm. It says their worm will never die. Why? Because it will feast on them and consume them for eternity. This is a graphic image. Think about being eternally consumed with fire and slowly eaten by this worm in perpetual torment. In fact, one of the commentaries I read notes this. It says, this figure is from Isaiah 66, 24, and he is taken from heaps of dead slain in, in battle. And the prophets say that the number would be so great that the worm, the, the worm that feeds on the dead would not die right, and would live long, as long as there were carcasses to be devoured, and that the fire which was used to burn the bodies of the dead would continue long to burn and would be, not be extinguished until they were all consumed. The figure, therefore, denotes great misery and certain and terrible destruction. In these verses, it is applied to the state beyond the grave and is intended to denote that the destruction of the wicked will be awful, widespread, and eternal. This is the imagery that Jesus, God in the flesh, is using here. Jesus, God incarnate, says, hell is a real place. It is a punishment for sin, and it's a place of horrific pain and suffering, and the suffering is never going to end. So Jesus is telling us. And whether we like it or not, whether we want to believe it or not, the truth of hell is real, and this truth should absolutely shake us. It should shake us to the core. You think death is bad? You think being persecuted is, is horrible? You think slowly dying of cancer is, is terrible? You think being betrayed by those that you love the most is bad? You think watching your loved ones slowly slip away in dementia is, is, is torture? All of that suffering put together is nothing compared to the eternal torment of hell. Permanent, conscious suffering for eternity. Multiply your greatest, I mean, your worst day of your life that you've ever lived by a billion, and that will still be a walk in the park compared to the reality of hell. Hell should terrify us. It should terrify us, but it doesn't. To the culture, it's just a joke. Why would I want to go to heaven when I can hang out with my friends in hell? We've heard that like a bazillion times, right? And we're not just talking about atheists either that say these things. When I was a kid, one of the most popular songs on the radio, even amongst professing Christians, was Hank Williams Jr. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie. I don't know if you remember that song, right? The words go like this. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I just as soon stay home. If they don't have a Grand Ole Opry like they do in Tennessee, just send me to hell or New York City. It would be about the same to me. And at that, we would giggle. But this is a reflection of how our culture doesn't truly understand and believe that hell is real. It's a big joke. 
The specter of hell should terrify us. The word hell itself should make our hearts shudder at least as much as the word cancer does. It should shudder our hearts the way the word war or miscarriage or the word murder. It should cause us to shudder worse than hearing the words, I'm leaving you. You're fired. I hate your guts. You're not welcome here. She's not going to make it. I'm sorry to inform you, but your son has been killed in a car accident. Whatever we might be afraid of in this life, our fear of hell should be even greater. This truth should shake us up. And it also should make us grieve. The truth should make us grieve. Every single human being, even the worst human being in the world, was created imago dei, in the image of God. And as such, they're important and valuable. And if they don't repent and believe the gospel, they are lost and destined to spend eternity in hell. Any person who does not come to faith in Christ is lost and destined to spend eternity in hell and in torment. And we're not talking about a few. We're talking about billions. This year, 61,600,000 people will die. The vast majority of whom are not Christians. That's almost the population of California and Texas combined. This year alone, it's 168,767 people a day, 7,031 people an hour, which is nearly three times the population of Boron. 117 people a minute, almost two people a second. 1,001, two people are gone. 1,002, that's four. 1,003, that's six. The vast majority of them do not know Christ, and they're stepping off in eternity, unprepared to meet God. 1,004, 1,005, 1,006. Church, this should break your heart. And to make it worse, these people aren't all nameless to us and faceless. These are our neighbors. Some of these are our friends. Some of them are our acquaintances. Some of them are co-workers. Some of them are people that we just can't, we hate their guts. Some of them are our family members. When I look at my extended family, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that there are some people who do not know Christ right now, and unless that changes, they're destined for hell if they don't repent and believe the gospel. There are people that I know who are my friends, people that I love dearly, that I know for a fact that if they don't heed the gospel and repent and believe, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And they're not criminals, right? They're not, they're not bad people according to our standards, not God's standards. But our standards, we would say they're good people. They do anything for you, right? They have good kids, they work hard, they give back to the community, and they genuinely care about other people. And they're going to hell and spend eternity in torment forever. This absolutely breaks my heart. I love these people. And the idea of millions of people who will go to hell this year breaks my heart. This truth about hell should shake us up and make us grieve deeply. But make no mistake, it should also make us worship God. And I know that might sound strange as an idea, but it should. We opened up today 
this worship service, reading Revelation chapter 4, and we see this picture of God in heaven and in the worship that takes place there. Did you know that when God finally sets all things right and finishes his work of redemption in heaven, all of heaven rejoice and worship him. They will rejoice and worship him for two reasons. For his grace and mercy that he has shown sinners, and they will worship him for his justice for those who refused him. The truth should make us worship God because his justice will be done. And before you protest, nobody grieves the prospect of that, that, that justice will be done to Hitler. Nobody grieves at the prospect of him spending eternity in hell. Nobody does. Or Stalin. Or Osama bin Laden. Or Saddam Hussein. Or Mao Zedong. Jeffrey Dahmer. Or Ted Bundy. The fact of the matter is, is we expect justice to be done. We're wired that way, both here on the earth and in heaven. In fact, as Christians, we find great comfort in the fact that those people who actually escape justice here in this life, that one day they're going to stand and face God, and he's going to judge them. That is one of the things that gives us hope. We expect justice to be done, and all of heaven will rejoice for God's justice. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. It says, After I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgment is true and just. God's judgments are true and just, which means that those who are cast in hell deserve to be there. And that's the simple truth. Not just Hitler, not just Ted Bundy. Sherman Burkhead deserves it too. I deserve hell for the sins I've committed in my life. So do you. We all deserve it. There's not a person who goes to hell that doesn't deserve to be there. Even the best people we know deserve to spend eternity in hell. Why? Because they're sin and they're rebelling against God. You think we don't take hell seriously enough? Well, if you think that anyone deserves anything but hell, then you don't take sin seriously enough. Notice what Jesus says here, that sin right, is so serious that it would be better for you to mutilate yourself, to avoid sin, as not to be sent to hell. I, I mean, think about this. Why is hell the punishment for sin? Because sin is so awful and ugly and repugnant and egregious. It is rebellion against a perfect and righteous and holy God. Our sin is horrifying. And, and, and it doesn't always seem like that to us because we are so covered up in it. The best person you know, the most generous and loving and compassionate person you know, because of their sin, they stand equally as guilty as Ahaz, who sacrificed his own children. That's how horrible their sin is. That's how horrible my sin is. And make no mistake, if I were to die in my sin without Christ, my sin is so awful, it's awful enough that when God judged me and cast me into the lake of fire, all of heaven would cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. There would be no tears shed for me in heaven. And they would do the same for you and anyone who is not in Christ. 
truth about hell should cause us to worship God because of his justice that will be done. But more importantly, we should worship God because we have been saved from that hell. Church, take that home. You have been saved from that hell. Radically rescued by God himself. John Piper says this. God took the record of all your sins, all your sexual failures that made you a debtor to wrath, and instead of holding them up in front of your face and using them as a warrant to send you to hell, he put them in the palm of his son's hands and nailed them to the cross. Brothers and sisters, that's why Christ came. Well, you deserve to be cast into hell, God himself, for Reasons that I can't possibly fathom came into the world to become a man to rescue you. You understand the magnitude of that. He came to rescue you from the awful and terrible wrath of God, which is the hell that we deserve. By his love and his grace, he took, he took a human nature to identify himself with us, fallen man, and he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live keeping and fulfilling the law that you couldn't fulfill. And then he willingly went to the cross, being tortured. And on that cross, he took upon himself your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future. And he bore in his body the awful and terrible wrath of a holy and righteous, just God. And in return, he gives to you his righteousness, be your own, so that you now no longer are an enemy of God, but you now are his family. You're his child. He died on the cross for you. And he rose again three days later. It proves that he is what he claimed to be, and he can do what he promised to do, which is to radically rescue you. And he ascended into heaven right now. He intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. Jesus came into the world on the most radical rescue mission known to man. If that doesn't change your life and cause you to want to be all in to follow him, nothing will. In fact, right now, do me a favor. I'd like for you to just take your finger and just point it right here. Point it yourself. And just repeat after me. He died for me. Did it to rescue me. He sacrificed himself for me. Church family, that's why this truth of hell is so important. Because without that, none of that makes any sense to you. Now, the last truth that this should motivate the last thing is this truth should motivate us to now share the gospel. Now that we're looking in the mirror and we see the horrors of hell and we see the free gift of salvation freely given to us by Christ, this should urge us on now to share the gospel with everyone you meet. Everyone you meet. Everyone you meet. Everyone you meet. You should leave no stone unturned. You should leave no one out. The only question you have to answer for yourself today is do you really believe what you say you believe about salvation, about hell, and about Christ? Because if you do, then what's stopping you, what's preventing you, 
from going out and creating a revival in this community. Heavenly Father, Lord, as much as I want to just move on and not think about this anymore, cause me to linger here for longer. I need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this truth. I need to be reminded of what you've rescued me from. And in light of that, then this radical life that you're calling me to doesn't seem so out of line radical. That you calling me to, to follow you and, and to be selfless and, and to be self-sacrificing doesn't seem so radical anymore. It seems like the right thing to do in light of what you've saved me from. But Lord, don't let that just stop there. Lord, break our hearts today, Father. We have friends and family members around us that we that will say that they believe in you, that we know that they don't. They despise you, Lord. They love their sin and they despise you. I don't want you. But we'll just placate them. Why are we afraid to talk to them? Why are we afraid to just tell them the truth? If they don't repent and believe the gospel. They're not saved. And the horrors of hell await them and their families. Break our hearts for this, Lord. Move us as a church, Lord. Help us, Lord. To live out what we say we believe. And go share the hope of Christ with everyone we come in contact with, Lord. Raise up a people here today, Lord, who will go out into this community and storm the gates of hell and rescue the lost. has this in your sovereign name. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.